right, today's scripture is from Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 20. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. Peace be with you. Well, this week we are continuing our series in, in, uh, entitled Enjoying God. Um, and I have the pleasure of uh, talking about enjoying God and his justice, which is a fun topic. So um, when we think about injustice, there's a broad range of injustices in the world, right? But I think it's telling to examine first even the smallest kinds of injustice uh, that can get us, and me specifically as an Enneagram One, really worked up in a major way. So a few weeks, a few weeks after Taylor and Bentley came to live with us, um, we were all picking up Taylor from school. I, uh, everybody gets in the car, I drive off, I see a truck backing out of a driveway onto the street, I lay, I, he doesn't see me, I lay, slam on the brakes, lay on my horn, he continues to back into me, I'm like, oh geez, so I take pictures, I get out, he's like, I'm so sorry, I gotta, you know, he's trying to rush off, he's like, I gotta go pick up my kids, blah, 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 doesn't want me to call the police, I said, okay, that's fine, open and shut case, right, I take pictures, I'm in the road, he hits the side of my car, I was totally stopped, you think it would be open and shut case, but that's, precisely what didn't happen, uh, State Farm calls me four weeks later, and they say, actually, um, you're 100% at fault for this accident, and you pay for all the damages. Apparently, some rogue witnesses, a month after the accident had happened, emerged from out of nowhere and, and, and spin up this totally different narrative that, that uh, State Farm had accepted at first. Um, actually, they even refused to accept my pictures of the accident, which were obvious proof of what happened. Um, and then, if you know me, I would not let this injustice stand. I go and I prove to State Farm that the witnesses don't exist and that there's no way that they could have possibly existed. I get statements from the teachers at the school. It's crazy. And State Farm then goes, okay, okay. We'll try to reach back out to the witnesses. For four more weeks, they try to reach out to these witnesses that had magically appeared out of nowhere. Can't get a hold of them. And then so State Farm says to me, well, can't get a hold of the witnesses. You're still on the hook. And so I'm left footing the bill for the majority of the damages. And uh, anyway, this story still gets me fired up because it's such an <laughs> obvious miscarriage of justice from this faceless corporation who has every incentive to keep money in their pockets and extract money from lowly little me with no legal representation. And that fire in my belly that still exists today, uh, I think is evidence of the burning desire for justice that we all possess. And as impure as those desires may be and as petty, petty as they may be, I think they are just a shadow of God's justice, which is integral to his character. And so this is what we want to look at today, uh, God's attribute of justice. And this is what I want us to see, that God, in his justice, makes broken relationships right and restores the world by his son and through his people. So we'll say that again. God, in his justice, makes broken relationships right, and restores the world by his son and through his people. So first, let's just look at a God of justice. Um, our passage today is Deuteronomy 10, and 
in Deuteronomy 10, we're jumping into the middle of one, one of Moses's last sermons to the Israelite people. He's re- recounting these key moments in their history together, and he comes to the story of the Ten Commandments. Now, um, mo- many, many people across cultures and across religions are um, at least have a passing knowledge of the story of the Ten Commandments, right? The Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. God gives him the law, um, which he actually inscribes with his very finger on these two tablets that, uh, that, we're, that are then called the Ten Commandments, and we might be somewhat familiar with the commandments themselves, at least a few of them. And, and, and in, in this passage in, in Deuteronomy 10, uh, we pick up the part of Moses' sermon where he's describing the heart behind the law that God's given And the law is so important to the story of God's people because it was the most explicit and tangible view of God's internal standards of justice that his people had ever seen. Um, It's impossible for us to fully know uh, the extent of God's moral standards, right? But we do know in his revelation what he's revealed to us, that he's perfect, he's pure, he's not corrupt, he's truthful, and he's fair, Um, And unlike any judge or ruler, he's not swayed by bribes or corrupt desires or sinister motives towards us. Um, Elsewhere in Deuteronomy, Moses uses metaphors like this. Our God is a consuming fire, and he uses those to describe the nature of his perfect justice. So that is that there's no part of the universe where his justice does not go, and there's no corruption, no unjust deed or system or person that can escape his all-powerful justice. He says in Deuteronomy 32, he is the rock, his ways are perfect, and all his ways are just. Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. So this is God's justice in brief, right? But how do we find joy in these truths about God's justice? As I've been thinking about that topic this week, uh, the perspective that finally drove me to joyful worship of this um, was imagining a a universe in which God is not just. So imagine with me a universe where instead the Lord is like every ruler that has ever ever lived. He's capricious, he's unjust, he plays favorites, he accepts bribes. And we hate those rulers, right? In part because Paul tells us in Romans that God's standards are written on our hearts. That is, we know this is wrong, and we long for someone uh, to come and make things right when these rulers present themselves. And so then think about living in that world where there is no hope for God uh, to bring about justice, to make things right. Would that really be a God worth worshiping? Um, The answer is obviously no, and then we compare that to the God of the Scriptures. Um, I love the phrase in this passage uh, this morning. It says, he shows no partiality and he accepts no bribes. It's kind of strange, like imagining God accepting a bribe, uh, but it's still a powerful image. The Lord, he's saying to us through this passage, there's nothing that could ever sway me from my moral standards and just character because it's foundational to my being and integral to my life and my deeds. I want a God that's worthy of worship, a just God worthy of worship, And we can find joy in his consistency and find pleasure in the clear path that he then sets before us to show us what's good and what's right. And even though we can't follow it, um, we can't fully follow it, the existence of that clear path itself, I think, brings joy and worship and peace to our hearts. And we can joyfully worship that God um, who is pure, he's without fault, 
and he's committed to making things right in the world. So that's kind of God's character. But then we have to consider God's delayed justice. Um, when we consider the briefest overview of God's divine justice, we can't help but ask ourselves that why today he allows injustice to stand. Does the Lord truly care about the foreigner when in our very country, um, children are jailed at the border for crossing the border, right? Or when we see countless orphans and children in foster care across the world. Why does the Lord not right these injustices immediately instead of allowing them to stand? Everyone, I think, that has seen or experienced a prolonged period of injustice has this question. Why is God's justice delayed? And I don't think that there's an easy answer to that question, but I think that we can approach at least a sense of a response. One way to think about God's delayed justice is acknowledging that there can be a purpose in his delay. Um, It's a difficult thing uh, to believe, for sure, in the midst of injustice and heartache, to have faith that God is in control and he's working out all things in the best possible way. But then if we stop and think that this is actually how God treated us in Jesus, specifically before we came to have new life in Christ. So God, if we think about it this way, actually finds it good to withstand rebellion and sin in order to restore someone to himself. In fact, Romans 2 says that it's, it's God's kindness, that is his delayed justice, that is meant to lead us to return to him. And then Paul also makes this argument in Romans 9 when he says, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, withstood with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? I think passages like this one then can encourage us in our waiting for divine justice. So much of the Christian life is about waiting. Waiting for answered prayer, waiting for healing, waiting for guidance, waiting for a relationship to be restored, and waiting for the return of Christ and the justice that will come with his new kingdom. Waiting for God's delayed justice means finding faith in the Lord's divine power, about whom earlier Moses says in Deuteronomy 10, to the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. And as we wait for God's justice, we do so trusting that the Lord in his power is writing history exactly how he intended and that it's for, that it's for the most possible good. So that's God's justice, his, his, care, his divine justice. But then what does that mean about broken relationships? That's what I want to move towards next. Uh, one author defines righteousness or justice as being right with God and therefore committing to put all other relationships right in life. We might even go further to say that justice itself is the making right of relationships. So first, our relationship with God. It's broken by sin and rebellion, right? Because we have broken God's righteous standards. And this leads then to separation from God. Um, One way that I think uh, is helpful to think about um, what separation with God means is we can examine what a broken relationship looks like, like with another person. There's this like deep spirit, there's this deep divide between two people Um, It's an emotional divide between them, and we might even call it a spiritual divide between two people who are estranged from one another. A meaningful relationship full of of love and selflessness has been replaced with resentment or indifference or rebellion, and a bond that we could never really see or quantify, we know that it's been broken, that there's a deep divide between them, 
right? And this is how scripture defines our relationship with God apart from Christ. But as we, remember, we mentioned earlier, it is actually God's justice that compels him to restore his relationship with us, and he does that through Jesus. Colossians 1 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to restore to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so then in Christ, we see the ultimate act of restoration. Jesus, the Son of God, becomes like us, lives the perfect life that we have all strived to live, and his, in his entirely earthly life, um, his God, relationship with God was never broken. And then Jesus willingly went to the cross to take on the full payment for our sins. He experienced the just punishment from God reserved for us so that we could have a way to restore relationship with God. And then he rises from the grave to blaze the path for new life with God that we can now enjoy in him. And so Christ restores our relationship with God. We're, I, th I think we're on board with that mostly here, that like he restores our relationship with God. But he also restores our relationships with, it, with one another. So if in fact that justice means a right relationship with God, that means that God's justice must mean that he desires for personal relationships to be made right as well. I think that for um, many of us, the acts of injustice that have the longest lasting effects on us personally are not necessarily from unjust systems or structures, um, but from those actually that we know personally. Um, injustice that we experience at the hand of a parent, a relative, a pastor, a friend, are actually the ones that bring the deepest and the longest lasting wounds. Um, and as we think about this, even this idea of God's delayed justice, that we can't help but cry out to the Lord and ask for justice to come to those who have violated our trust um, and brought lost, lasting damage to our souls. But if God's justice really does compel him to remake relationships, that means he desires for those injustices to be made right. <coughs> Perhaps that's in the form of healing for you personally. Um, it could be consequences poured out on your offender or even reconciliation if that's both possible and appropriate. Whatever it is, we do know this much. It pleases God's heart to restore relationships and make what is broken right. You can be confident that he is purposefully and powerfully working in both the offender and the one who has been hurt to bring about justice. God's character will not allow things to stay broken forever. His desire is to restore the hurting and bring justice to those who have been wronged. Um, listen to this great passage from Psalm 146. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. So we see God, God's justice extending to our personal relationships. But I, I, I would contend that it extends to relationships that we actually have in our communities through the societal structures that we live in. 
Listen to the uh, command from Moses again in verse 19 in our passage today. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So in the ancient world, foreigners uh, carried far more of a stigma and a threat than they even do today. Uh, In the time of Moses, your family and your tribe was everything. So a foreigner then represented someone who was fundamentally different from you. At best, they were fully separated from your way of life. And I would say at worst, they threatened the very existence of your family and your people. So, So foreigners were fundamentally other. But it's in this context, then, that Scripture explicitly commands the people of God to welcome the foreigner, to care for them, and to feed them. And in the New Testament, then, Jesus continues this theme of welcoming outsiders. When you give a lunch or dinner, he says, don't invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So then my question for us is, how do we apply this today? Who are the people on the fringes of our society? Um, When I think about that question, uh, the scope of what is happening, even in our country alone, is staggering to me, right? We live in the richest country in the world, where countless families enjoy incredible wealth, And yet, in our country alone, there are 39 million people that live below the poverty line. Um, Just last year, um, in part because women lacked the resources and support from their communities, uh, we saw 600,000 abortions in in the United States alone. There are 400,000 foster kids in our country at any given time. And at this very moment, in our very state, in our backyard, there are 20,000 foster kids in the state of Missouri. Uh, After how about this, after being explicitly blocked from professional advancement for decades, women still make less than men in the workplace. Um, And we can't forget the centuries of explicit, demeaning, horrendous oppression that white people inflicted on people of color in our country. And our culture still lives with those open wounds every day. Like they permeate our very way of life so deeply that it can be even easy to forget that they are there because they are so close to us. And actually, those are just a list of injustices um, and marginalizations that are actually noticed in our culture today. Those are actually like popular issues, not to mention all the things that are brushed under the rug that that we don't even think about. And all of these, I would say, represent an example of a broken relationship. So social justice, that is, um, I I would actually contend that social justice is just justice because it's the making right of broken relationships. The Lord seeks to restore this brokenness, and he chooses to do so in part, then, through the people he's restored. So we see that God is a God of justice. We we know that justice means the restoration of broken relationships and making them right. And finally, for us, what does that mean? It means that we are restored to restore. Um, That's our last point. So how do do we respond to all this injustice in the world? Micah 6.8 says it so plainly. The Lord says he is, he, to us, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. We say a lot here that we are blessed to be a blessing. Um, another way we might think of that in the context of justice is that we are restored to restore. 
the reality is that now that you have been changed by a relationship with Christ, we are compelled to bring about justice in the world. I would say it is our duty as people of God to intentionally and effectively bring about justice in our communities. But now what? Like that short list that I mentioned earlier, um, first of all, is just what is happening in our little corner of the world. And it's more than any one person or organization could ever dream to address. Um, and uh, in our culture today, we're full of uh, posturing and exposure of our stances on the internet that we can be actually made to feel that it's morally wrong to not passionately pursue every single injustice plaguing our society today. Um, in fact, I think it's, it can be exhausting uh, to even have a position on every social justice issue that we, that we present, and it actually can feel wrong to not have an exhaustive um, declarative position on every issue, let alone act on them, right? Um, but even if our culture then fails to recognize and embrace the limits of a single person, that is you, you are one single person, our Father does know the children that he has made. And his command through Moses is remarkably personable and achievable. It says, care for the foreigner because you know what it's like to be one of them. In other words, the Lord calls us to fight the injustice that he has uniquely created us to address. He has specifically gifted you with skills, passions, resources, a history, relationships, to bring about a little bit of justice in the world. Some of you are called to raise up children, who, by the way, are um, a class of people that is dismissed and underappreciated in our world and you're called to raise them up in the home or in the classroom. Many of you care for foster and adopted kids. Some of you care for refugees. Others of you fight for racial and social justice. And some of you work for economic equality in the world. And uh, many of you, I know, give sacrificially of your time and your resources and your giftings to advance the work of the church here and around the globe. Um, and so I want to acknowledge that, um, that we have, we have a church of people that, that does, does fight for justice within their specific giftings. Um, and I want to encourage you that whatever the Lord is calling you to, know that he has gifted you to do something specific and something meaningful. He knows your limits and he knows your story. And he is calling and commanding you to step out, equipped with those truths about yourself, to be a small part of the justice He's bring, he is bringing about in the world. And so then how do we, where does all this all lead us in enjoying God and his justice? We've seen that in Christ, we've been restored in relationship to God in the here and now. We believe that he's restoring personal and structural relationships. And we are working within our personal giftings and callings to bring about justice in the here and now. And I think this is where we find joy. We find joy in all of these things because they're a reminder, they're a shadow of the things to come at Jesus' return. Philippians 3 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables us to bring, that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they, so they will be like his glorious body. When Jesus does return, we will fully experience his kingdom. All things will be made right. In his justice, he will restore our bodies. He'll repair our relationships. He'll punish the unjust. 
and destroy all structures that oppress the poor and the marginalized. And while we mourn over the evil that exists today, we are promised that new life will be experienced in Christ when he returns. And that new life will be more joyous and more perfect than we can ever imagine. So how do we experience deep, lasting joy in God's justice? We look forward to that day when it will be fully poured out on the universe. When creation is restored fully to its relationship with God. On that day, we will see God as he is, and we will live in a new kingdom where Christ reigns supreme, all injustices are set right, and we can live in right relationship with God and with each other forever. This is where we find joy. This is what we look forward to as we, as we think about the question, how do we find joy in God's justice? One of the pictures that we practice here every week at Trinity is, um, is communion. It is a picture of the justice um, that God poured out through Christ, uh, poured out onto Christ on our behalf. Um, each week we take the bread um, that Christ took and he, um, when he said, this is my body broken for you, um, when he broke his body on our behalf uh, to make our relationship right with God. And in the same way he took the cup and says, this is my, this is my blood poured out for you, um, giving us a picture of the new covenant that we have with God through his blood. And so each week we take communion where you can come forward and um, break off a piece of the bread and dip, dip it in the wine or the juice. The wine is marked by twine. And remember and participate um, in Christ's blood shed for you and the restoration that he's given you with God here and now, and also to look forward to the restoration that he brings at his coming. If you're not a Christian, we ask you not to take part in this meal, but instead to take part in Christ. Um, who eagerly waits uh, to have a relationship with you. So when you're ready, I invite you to come.